Hey there, and welcome to our next installment of Typology. Tonight, we are going to be digging into the life of Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham's son. What we've learned is that typology is a series of events that happen in the Old Testament. They actually happen. We believe that. And they either point to something or they are fulfilled in the New Testament writings, whether that be in Christ or in the church or in another way. And so um, it's kind of like a, um, the Old Testament is kind of like a micro picture pointing to a bigger picture, a more clear picture. Um, it's very much uh, uh, one, one activity that's pointing to a more full activity or a greater activity. This is what we find. As we look at the life of Abraham and Isaac tonight, um, what we realize is that when we have spent some time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, in those chapters, uh, there's been a lot of things that have transpired from the Garden of Eden to the flood to the Tower of Babel, just so many things have transpired. Uh, and it's covered about 2,000 years of human history from Genesis chapters 1 to chapter 11, about 2,000 years of human history. When we approach chapter 12, though, what we find is that uh, the speed really slows down. And instead of, you know, jumping hundreds of years in advance, now what you find is from chapters 12 through chapters 50, it only covers about 200 years of human history as opposed to 2,000 years. And so you find it slow down a little bit, but you also see a focus, a narrowing of the storyline as it approaches. And it, it focuses, beginning in chapter 12, on the family line of a man by the name of Abraham. When we find Abraham, he's 75 years old. One of the first things in the opening uh, chapter of, or the opening verse of Genesis 12, what we find is that God is calling this 75-year-old man to go away to a faraway land. And so from that moment, um, we see a man of faith. We see a man of obedience, a man who is consecrated to the Lord. And the scripture uh, for the remaining chapters of Genesis really focused not only on his life, but the children and the grandchildren and so forth that he will produce. And so tonight what we're going to do as we look at Abraham and Isaac, we're going to look at the connections that they have to Jesus, the, the likenesses, the things that they did that were uh, a foreshadowing or later fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But as I said, as we step into uh, the first point in your notes, the first thing that we find said about Abraham is found in Genesis 12, chapter 1, and this is what Scripture says. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And so in this way, we have Abraham, who was a foreigner, but we also have Jesus, who was a foreigner. He had left, and even notice the language in the text here. Uh, scripture says that uh, Abraham, he was told to leave his father's house. In the same way that Jesus spoke of heaven, he said that in my father's house, there are many mansions. There are many rooms in my father's house. And so you see even the language be similar here, but the reality is this, is that Jesus left glory to come to a place that was not filled with glory. He left his father's house to come in human form to be like us. And the reality is that Jesus, 
although that he came to be like us in human form, <coughs> excuse me, he is very similar to us. He is the same as us in some ways, that he can be tempted, that he could bleed, that he could hurt, that he has emotions. But in the same way, it's important for us not to lose grip that, that Jesus is very different from us. God is very other than, than what we are. Um, you know, we, we find these statements in Scripture where God calls himself a father or where God calls himself a friend of sinners. And the idea behind that is, is God trying to, to what we call accommodate. He's trying to frame himself in a way that our mortal bodies can handle. He's trying to give us understanding. He's trying to say, listen, in the same way that you have an earthly father that loves you, that would give his life for you, so is your father in heaven. And so in many ways, uh, Jesus is similar to us. Obviously, he was fully human. But the part of Jesus that is fully divine, that is fully God, is very other than what we are. And so when we run across things in Scripture that we do not understand— when we see things in the Bible that, that come across as a type of mystery, it's important for us to remember that although Jesus came in human form, Jesus is a foreigner to this land. Jesus does not belong here. Jesus is a part of the glory in another realm. But again, the, the, the fact that Abraham was a foreigner in his land, Jesus also was a foreshadowing that Jesus would be a foreigner in this land. Number two in your notes, what we find is that Abraham initiated the old covenant just as Jesus initiated the new covenant. Genesis 17, 11 reads like this, the Lord speaking to Abraham, and this is what he says. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so in Abraham and the trajectory of the Jewish nation, the sign that you were a committed Jew was that you were physically circumcised. So we see when David, um, you know, he's contending, or Saul really is contending with David. And Saul says, if you're really for me, go out and I want you to slaughter hundreds of Philistines and to prove that you slaughtered them, bring back their foreskins. In other words, prove that they are not Jewish. And so David goes out and he does that. He kills double the amount and he brings the foreskins back to prove that they are not Jewish. Why? Because a circumcised person, that was the mark of a Jew. And so that was the mark of the old covenant. It was a covenant of works. It was a covenant of the flesh, literally a covenant of the flesh. Well, when Jesus comes, he initiates a new covenant. And it's no longer about the circumcision of the flesh. It's about the circumcision of the heart. It's no longer about what we do on the outside. It's about what God is doing on the inner part of who we are. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled the old covenant of the circumcision. He fulfilled that so that we are no longer bound to that covenant. We no longer have to be circumcised to be accepted by God. We're not under that covenant anymore because Jesus gave us a new covenant. Listen to what uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians. He said, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. So he's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're not circumcised. What matters is that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
Why? Because he comes to make all things new. And so even Paul begins to focus. He says it's not about the outer works that we do. It's about the inward things that are happening. This um, breaking away from the covenant of circumcision was a huge thing in the early church. I mean, there should be studies developed on uh, just one chapter of Scripture, Acts chapter 15. What we find is that as Jesus has died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven, we find the early church is exploding with growth. The gospel is going forth. Thousands, maybe even millions of people are being saved all across the planet. Well, what begins to happen is that there are some people that were at one time Jewish. Well, now they've come to faith in Christ. Well, they are still people of the circumcision. Why? Because they were formerly Jews. Well, now all of a sudden you've got people who aren't Jewish, people who were uncircumcised, and all of a sudden they are coming to the faith. And there was a group of church leaders in the early church that were requiring grown people to be circumcised in order to be Christians. And so there was this whole council, it's called the Council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. All the heads of the church come together. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is there. Paul is there. Barnabas shows up. Um, just all these mega leaders show up to this conference, and they're having a discussion about circumcision. And the whole idea is this. Did Christ really come to set us free from the old covenant or not? Are we under a new covenant? Are we still attached to the works or we attach to what God is doing now in the inner part through the Spirit. And so there was this whole division. And it was in this moment that the church had to decide, look, are we just going to be an offshoot of Judaism, still be bound to the law, still be bound to circumcision, but call ourselves Christians? Or is Jesus come to do something new and truly deliver us from all types of bondage? And I thank God that in Acts chapter 15 they voted and they decided clearly that no longer are we going to be bound to those laws. We are free in Christ Jesus, and the message spread throughout the kingdom. I think that that is one of the most underrated and undervalued portions of Scripture because I'm going to tell you, if that didn't happen in Acts chapter 15, we would be living a very different life today. And so we thank God for this old covenant, right? But we thank God even more for the new covenant, that we don't have to live by the works of the flesh that we are now guided by the inner workings of the Spirit. Number three in your notes, we find Abraham interceded for Sodom just as Jesus intercedes for the whole world. As uh, judgment is coming to Sodom in Genesis 18, the Lord sending judgment to Sodom. He's going to destroy Sodom. The Bible says a, a powerful phrase right here in the, in the second part of this verse, ch uh, chapter 18, verse 22. The Bible says Abraham still stood before the Lord. Judgment was already being sent, but the scripture says, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And he said, Father, if, if, if you can find 50 righteous people, will you spare them? Couldn't find 50. 45, will you spare them? Couldn't find them. 40, will you spare them? No. 30, will you spare them? Can't find them. 20, 10, all the way down to 10 people. Could not find 10 righteous people in the land. And so the judgment came to fulfill. But the point is this, is that even though judgment still came, you had a man of God who was interceding on the behalf of the sinners. In the very same way, we see Jesus weeping over the lost sheep of Jerusalem. Even further than that, even more than that, what is Jesus doing now? Scripture reminds us that he sits at the right hand of the Father ever to make intercession for us. 
So even in his glorified eternal state, he's making intercession to the Father on our behalf, and it is an incredible thing to ponder. Um, uh, One man said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. Even if I can't hear him, distance makes no difference. He is still praying for me. Amen? And so we see Abraham interceding. We see Jesus interceding. Number four in your notes, Abraham may have encountered the Trinity just as Jesus encountered the Trinity at baptism. Now, this one is a little bit shaky, okay? So let me just give that preface, that disclaimer. But in Genesis 18, listen to what the scripture says. It says, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he stood at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, what makes this portion of scripture interesting is this, is that Abraham addresses the three men as one man, but also as three people. Furthermore, what makes it interesting is that he addresses them as Lord, but also as men. uh, So the the word Yahweh, translated the word Yahweh, is used here. Okay, so there is some evidence that this may have been what we call a Christophany, which is a, uh, it is Jesus pre-incarnation who makes his presence known in the Old Testament. It happens several times throughout the Old Testament. So, so if that is true, it may not have been, it may have been angels. We don't, we don't really know. We can't be for sure. But there's some evidence there that points that this may have been a, a truly divine encounter. If that is so, it is reminiscent of Jesus' encounter at his baptism. Remember this? Jesus is in the pools of, of uh, the Jordan. Uh, the Bible says the Father speaks from heaven. The Son is dipped into the water. And as he's raised back up, the Spirit of God descends on, on him like a dove, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all represented at the same event. And so there may be some evidence there, may not be. Uh, I'd rather not camp too hard on that. Um, but the point is, uh, there may be some similarities there. Number five, uh, we jump all the way from Abraham to Isaac. Now, Isaac is the, uh, uh, the son that was born of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And what we find is that Isaac's birth was prophesied just as Jesus' birth was prophesied. Uh, Genesis 18 says, The Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son which sounds amazing, but what you got to understand is that this prophecy that was re-prophesied in this moment where he says you're going to have a son in a year, it was originally prophesied about 20, 25 years beforehand. And so there's been a lot of history, a lot of time that has passed since the prophecy uh, was spoken to the time that it became fulfilled. In the same way, the birth of Christ is prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. It is a worthy study if you ever get the time. Number six in your notes, um, Isaac's birth came through a miraculous conception just as Jesus' birth came through a miraculous conception. Uh, Genesis 18, the scripture says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And listen to the, the phraseology that's used here. The Bible says, And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah so much 
that she laughed to herself. The phrase, the way of women, uh, not to be inappropriate or anything like that, but is likely uh, attached to uh, the ability to, to reproduce. The menstrual cycle, uh, the eggs that a woman carries, all these kind of things. That way of women had, had long passed for Sarah. What we find is that by the time Sarah ends up giving birth to Isaac, she's 90 years old. She's 90 years old. Abraham, to make it even more amazing and miraculous, we find that he is 100 years old when this happens. I think it's so interesting and so, so fascinating. The Bible says that Sarah knew how old they were. She knew her inner workings were not working. And so much so that she laughed to herself when she heard the Lord make the promise that she would have a baby a year later. It's amazing how God works. So we see that in the life of Isaac, but then we see a miraculous conception in the life of Jesus as his birth comes through a virgin, right? Number seven in your notes, Abraham offered his only son, Isaac, just as God offered his only son, Jesus. Notice the language that Genesis chapter 22, verse two uses. Then God said to Abraham, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's very reminiscent of the language Jesus uses in uh, John chapter 3 and in John chapter 5, where uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whomever should believe would have eternal life. Uh, we see time and time again where Jesus or Paul reiterates the love that the father had for the son, and it's very reminiscent that not only their love that they had, but they were willing to sacrifice their one and only son uh, for the glory of God. Number eight, as we carry on with the sacrifice, what we find is Isaac carried his own wood up the hill just as Jesus carried his own cross up the hill of Calvary. Genesis 22, verse six, Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Now, Isaac, as a younger man, would not have realized or known that the wood he was placing on his back, that the knife and the fire that he carried in his hands would be instruments of death for him. He had no idea. Abraham would not have told him, you know, uh, beforehand. He was just obeying his father in a very similar way that Jesus was obeying his father by taking the wooden cross and placing it on his back and carrying it to the cross. They would both be instruments of death where one would be used and one ultimately would not. Number nine, finally, is that Isaac was spared through a sacrificial death just as we are spared through Jesus's sacrificial death. Scripture says that as Abraham and Isaac get up the hill. Abraham prepares the burnt offering. He prepares the, the wood and the fire. And he lays his son on top of the bed of wood. And scripture says he pulls out the knife and he goes to thrust it into his son's chest. When the Lord speaks to Abraham and tells him to stop. And he says, Abraham, I, I trust you. I know that your heart is fully committed. You would have killed your son if I would have asked. I, I, I trust you now. I trust you. Don't kill your son. And the Bible says, and Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. 
he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of sacrificing his son. This is the first time in scripture we see the phrase used Jehovah Jireh. And what it means in essence is the Lord will see to it. The Lord will find a way. Um, the Lord will provide. We usually, that's usually the terminology we use, that the Lord, the Lord will provide for us. And this is the first time that we see that phrase used. Now, a lot of questions come up when you begin to talk about the ram that's caught in the thicket, right? And the reason is, is because Jesus, they say, well, if this is really a foreshadowing, if, if this event with Isaac is really foreshadowing the events that happened to Jesus, then if Jesus is the lamb of God, why would a ram be the sacrifice that was provided? Why wouldn't God send a lamb to be sacrificed instead of a ram? And there, there are two trains of thought here regarding this text, and both of them are based on interpretation. Number one, uh, one way to interpret this is just to simply say that it was a ram because God wanted to provide a ram, like a, like a real, a, a physical, literal lamb, or ram, okay? Another way of interpretation is to understand that sometimes male sheep are called rams, and they have horns, and it very well could have been a adult lamb, if you will. So let me, let me clarify a little bit. There, there are different categories of sheep. So number one, you have a young sheep, which we call a lamb, right? You have a, a young sheep that's a lamb. And then you have female sheep that are called ewes. And then you have castrated male sheep. And these castrated male sheep are called weathers. And then you have sheep that are normally found in the wild. They are fully intact. They are uncastrated sheep, adult males, and they are called rams. Even today, they're called rams. And so there are two levels of interpretation. In the end, does it matter? Not really, because the point is simply this, that in the same way that Christ became a substitutionary death for us, there was some type of substitutionary death for Isaac so that he did not have to die in the same way that we do not have to suffer eternal death. And so whether it was an actual lamb or whether it was an actual ram, we're not sure, but I will say this, Regardless, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world based on his substitutionary death for us. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for all of these truths and so much foreshadowing and so much confidence that, as Paul reminds us, that before the foundations of the earth were ever created, that you had a plan of salvation work for us. And we see this plan woven all throughout the Old Testament, making its fulfillment in the New Testament. I thank you for that. I pray that you'll strengthen your people, mature us, strengthen our faith, help us to grow in the Lord as we read through these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.